in my 22 years, I never, I never introduced myself as, hey, I'm Tuiere, Congressman John Lewis's district director. I would wait and say, hey, I'm Tuiere, how are you? That simple just interaction. And I think that it's important for us to realize that we are all humans. Like you said, Lindsay, we're all humans first. So why don't we just get to know each other as people? We need to get back to just saying, hello, how are you? You know, what do you like to do? Not what do you do? Because what you do doesn't define what kind of person you are. And I think that we put this, these definitions or these expectations on people because of the, the positions or careers that they have and thinking that then they're above or better than or better off, and that's not the case. Welcome to the Living Centered Podcast, where we enter into honest conversations about pursuing a more centered life, rediscovering, reclaiming, and rooting in to who we truly are. I'm your host, Miles Edcox. I'm your host, Lindsay Nobles. And I'm your host, Mackenzie Vogt. Hey y'all, thanks for joining us for another episode of the Living Centered Podcast. I'm so excited about today's episode and I can't wait to introduce you to Tuary Butler. Tuary is an incredible human. She has a huge heart. She loves pizza. She's a curator of community. She has spent her life from an early age devoting her energy to using her gifts and time to empower and serve others. I decided to introduce Tuary a little bit differently than we normally do today, frankly, because of a conversation we had in our interview. Tuary really talked about how we don't get to know people for who they really are. We asked them questions about what they do, and we immediately jumped to how could they serve us, and we try to make our connections based on status rather than relationship. And so I wanted to start there today. And now to tell you a little bit more about Tuary. In 2020, she transitioned from the world of politics after the death of her beloved boss, Congressman John Lewis. She was his longest-serving employee of over 22 years, and she led his Atlanta office in her role as a district director. Now, Tuary serves as the Director of Operations for Plywood People in Atlanta, Georgia. Plywood People is an incredible organization that I can't wait for you to hear a little bit more about. It's a nonprofit serving a community of startups and doing good. Lindsay and I had such an incredible time getting to know Tuary a little bit more. And as we'll hit in the interview, from the moment we met Tuary, we both knew that we wanted to introduce her to you. So without further ado, our friend Tuary Butler. Welcome everyone and welcome Tuary Butler. We are so excited that you are here. Thanks for joining us, friend. Oh, absolutely. It's my pleasure. I'm glad to see you both. So I feel good. It was so exciting to get to just to kind of spend this time together with you. Um, I would love for all of our listeners to just get to know you a little bit before we dive into some of your past work experience or um, what you're doing now. But who is Tuary? Can you start there? <laughs> um, okay. Well, Tuary is an only child and uh, very uh, quirky and um, an introvert. But I have a gift, I feel like, in making people feel very welcome. And I think Mm. that's because I grew up as an only child and I'm an only child that I never wanted people to feel like they were on the outside or not included. Uh, So that's like a personal mantra that I carry along with every encounter 
that I have an opportunity to be in, every space I have an opportunity to be in. Ture is a Swahili name and it means protector and oh. defender. Mm. So I I think I take that along with me, protecting people and defending others as well. Born in Boston, grew up in D.C., came to Atlanta for college, and I've made Atlanta my home for the past 20-something years. Yeah. Is your family still in Boston? Yeah, my uncles um, and some of my cousins are still in Boston. My parents are still in Washington, D.C., so... I get to go home and see them quite often because it's just an hour and a half plane ride. That's great. Well, that's perfect. So in kind of doing a little bit of like getting to know you on the internet, um, I ran across something that your mom used to ask you, what did you do today? And really what she was asking is like, how did you serve others today? And so I'd love to hear a little bit about your parents being an only child and what I can make up is like a passion for serving others that was really woven into your DNA from an early age. What did that look like? Very much so. I mean, you know, as an only child, you get the stigma that you're spoiled, right? And yes, I was spoiled. I I didn't want for anything. Um, Mm -hmm. However, I did have to work for things so that I could appreciate the value and have an appreciation overall for what my parents were affording me. And they made it very clear that not everybody lives this way. So you need to be one appreciative, but you also need to be generous. So one of the things that, you know, we would talk about around the dinner table um, is what did you do? What did you learn? And how did you serve someone else? How were you nice to someone else? How did you help Mm. someone else? And I think that goes back to, you know, me being an inclusive person because you don't want You know, I didn't want anybody to be on the outside. So, you know, from a very young age, um, I would help out after school with my teachers. I Mm -hmm. begged my parents to get a work permit when I was young. (laughs) I think (laughs) I was 13 and you had to go to uh, the state to you. Both your parents had to Uh, sign up for sign you up for that. And so I got an after school job and helped um, when I graduated from elementary school. When I was in junior high, I went back to my elementary school and helped my teachers with the after school program with the younger kids and then became a camp counselor at my elementary school, volunteered as a candy striper. I don't know if people (laughs) even know what that is. That kind of dates me, but Basically, I worked in a hospital for outpatients uh, who were getting um, glaucoma uh, outpatient surgery. And so I would go around and see if they were feeling okay, if they wanted cookies and juice. And maybe I snuck a couple of of cookies for myself in the back. I volunteered at a library at a senior citizen's home, reading books to the seniors. It's just, you know, it wasn't about what I could get, what I could Mm -hmm. consume. Um, It was how I could extend myself to help somebody else. So that that's a very big thing in my house. I'm both my parents worked very hard um, and sacrificed a lot to give me the things that a lot of people didn't have access to and wanted me to uh, have an appreciation for that throughout. So I love that just that uh, sort of ingrained service mantra that your parents just instilled in you in such a young age. And then I also know like one of the things we talk about at Onsite is like, how do we like be okay as human beings and not just human doings and the tension of those. I think a lot of us that 
work Mm -hmm. in public service or in helping people, whether it's a ministry or a nonprofit or a mental health service, that there's so we give so much of ourselves that sometimes we don't take care of ourselves. What have you learned about how you balance the two, that this incredible, generous spirit of giving, and then also like making sure that you are taking care of yourself and sort of getting what you need as well? Uh, It's very interesting that you say that because that is a hard reality. And that component or that part of giving and being generous and serving others did not come into play for me, honestly, until I came through y'all's program at Onsite uh, for Emotionally Smart Leadership. It, you think if you're an able body, or at least this is how I thought, I thought if I'm able-bodied and I have the capacity to do it, then I can do it. I can expand my territory and stretch my tent. However, I was not taking care of myself or I wasn't treating myself bad, but I wasn't putting myself on the same, balancing it out. Um, And I think through spending that time with you all, I really came away with like, kind of like a hard acceptance. Like, you know what, it's okay to take care of myself. Actually, it's necessary to take care of myself. And that can look different. That doesn't always mean that you go on these two week or month long vacations. (laughs) That sounds real nice. (laughs) Right. I mean, who wouldn't want to do that? But it might just mean, you know, looking at what you have on your plate and kind of taking an assessment, um, like maybe I should take the day off or maybe I should work from home that morning and come in um, so that I can be refreshed and renewed. Because if I'm not If I'm not filled up, then how can I pour into my team? How can I pour into my family? And the the illustration that I walked away with after leaving my time at Onsite was when you fly on the airplane and they're going through the safety procedures and they tell you, like, should something happen, put the oxygen mask on you first before you help, like, your your family member or or your child. And that, like was like, ah, here it is. This is the light bulb. I have to take care of myself. I have to fill myself up before I can extend that to my team and to my family. So that was a a long lesson to learn so late in life, but I have been definitely putting it to use. In fact, I took off last Friday just because I needed a moment to sit still and I feel much better. So thank you guys. Look at you. Yeah. I love it. And I think there are so many areas where that is rewarded, that like service, that ability, that high capacity in so many industries, so many places. And I do think like when there's work to be done or there is impact to be made, we have this tension. I know I feel that even in my own self of like, okay, well, if I don't do it, who will? Right. Um, and something that I've been learning is like, I actually am not giving to the capacity, like my capacity when it's completed, I don't actually have as big an impact as I think I do. But speaking of it being rewarded, I think being in some of the context that you've been in and even um, worth your work with the congressman, I'd love to hear about like in that tension of like, we're doing good work and also I'm losing my own self in that. Um, And how did that play out for you? What did that look like as that lesson you're currently learning a little bit later? Well, I worked around the clock 
And I would take the hit, basically. So if someone on the staff or there was a gap that needed to be filled, um, I just added it to my plate because one, especially when I was district director, you know, I'm, I'm in charge, right? So, you know, you're leading a team, but ultimately they're looking at you like, did this get done out of the district office, which is what I led uh, for the congressman. And I would rather take the hit than allow someone on my team or my staff to take the hit. Mm. And that's not necessarily the right way to do things because I was exhausted, to be honest. And in the world of politics, I mean, even if you don't follow politics, but if you are listening and um, in the know of just what's going on in the world, you can see that it's very, uh, it's an ebb and flow. It's very up and down. Some some moments or some seasons can be very tense and just ongoing. Mm-hmm. As I know that we all saw that in the beginning of 2020, where you have a pandemic, where you have racial tension, where you have, you know, an election coming up. So all of those things are like being put into a pressure cooker. And you don't think about the staff of members of Congress or Senate, people in government who are working around the clock to ensure that, you know, things are running somewhat right or somewhat correctly. And information nowadays is so constant and fast in terms of how much we get at one time. And it's never ending. Whereas before you could rely on, oh, you get up and you read the newspaper and you know what happened the day before or a week ago. Well, now you can just turn on your phone and get it real time. Mm -hmm. So we're, but we're human bodies. We're not machines. So, you know, I was kind of working against a clock that in this new realm where it was not set up for the human body to take care of themselves and to to do the work that that needs to be done to to run a country. So it was, yeah, it was a lot. <laughs> There's no shortage of things pulling on you. Yeah, no, I mean because then you think about like for me, running the district office is really it's it's unlike uh, the legislative office where you're drafting legislation and co-sponsoring bills. The district office is is a reflection of what's happening in the country. So we're dealing with the constituents or rather the residents of that district. And mm. you have to sit on the other side of the desk to to let a constituent resident know, hey, you know, your child might not be able to go overseas to study this semester because they did not get their visa or, hey, you know, your son or daughter just came back from the war and we're trying to establish benefits through the Veterans Administration. Um, There's so many different federal agencies that, you know, district offices for senators and Congress representatives, you know, are going to bat for people who can't help themselves or just can't rummage through the red tape of bureaucracy. And so it it can be very difficult and very frustrating. And so a lot of times people who work in a district office kind of take on the problem and you feel that, you feel Mm -hmm. that emotion and you want to get it done and you want to do right by the people who you're serving, or at least, you know, I, I tried to do that every day. So... There weren't a lot of vacations that I took. Uh, There were a lot of long hours 
And I, I'm not complaining at all. It, it was worth every single moment of it to serve this country in the capacity that I that I was able to. But it's hard, hard work. Burnout is real. And that's why turnover is high. But when you work for someone as great as Congressman Lewis, our, our staff was pretty solid. Yeah. What you're talking about is working for Congressman John Lewis, the, you know, iconic civil rights hero. Um, I got to hear him speak probably about five years ago. And I just remember like the feeling of being in the room with him. He had such a magnetic presence and this like playfulness and, but he could say really hard things and people would listen. And I just remember being so moved being in his presence for such a short amount of time. And you worked with him for 22 years. Is that right? Yes, I was his longest serving employee, 22 years. Wow, it's just amazing. Yeah, I, I can't believe it. I mean, he would say it and he would introduce me as this is Tuiri, my longest serving employee. And, you know, the numbers started to go up 10, 15. And then when he got to 22, I was like, oh, my gosh, I've, I literally <laughs> have grown up with this man. So, yeah, it, it was an honor for sure. I think about him every day. How how old were you when you started working with them? I was 24 and I started as a staff assistant. So basically entry level, uh, doing things that maybe some of the senior staff didn't want to do, you know, giving me the casework that wasn't so glamorous and opportunities that weren't so glamorous. But I will say that it helped me to have a full understanding of everything that it took to run a district office. And I developed an empathy and compassion for just people all over from different social economic backgrounds um, who are just trying to navigate life and figure out Mm -hmm. government. And it can be tricky. And so I, I think that's my compassion and empathy for people and just knowledge is what prompted the congressman to ask me to lead his Atlanta office in the end. So that was a high honor for me. That's amazing. I am imagining, and this I'm just curious about this, because having worked with a lot of visionary leaders that, and people that are very magnetic, that you've worked with them for 22 years, it's like the, those, they're, they're still human, you know, and they still have bad days. And I think so often we put people on pedestals, and then we sort of just sort of wait for them to fall off of it for us, you know? Yeah. I just was curious sort of your thoughts or observations on sort of how we can do a better job of like holding the humanness of our heroes. I think about this a lot because, and I don't know if it was because of how I grew up. Again, my dad also worked in politics, so he worked for Senator Edward Kennedy and Reverend Jesse Jackson and uh, President mm-hmm. Bill Clinton and um, Mayor Mayor and Barry. And then his mother worked for the governor of Massachusetts. So, it, you know, it, it, I, I come from a long line of service. Yeah. Legacy. Yeah. Legacy, yes. And then my husband is in the entertainment industry, and so he's worked for you know, or worked with uh, the Cheetah Girls and Backstreet Boys. And um, he's worked on television shows like The Four, America's Got Talent. So I have NSYNC, I have been around (laughs) a lot of celebrities and and high officials and people who we all look up to and, and follow on Instagram and Twitter. And, 
you know, develop this narrative of how their life must be and what kind of people they must be. And I always go into meeting and interacting with a person just because they're a person. So a lot of times in my 22 years, I never introduced myself as, hey, I'm Tuere, Congressman John Lewis's district director. I would wait and say, hey, I'm Tuere, how are you? That, yeah. that simple just interaction. And I think that it's important for us to realize that we are all humans. Like you said, Lindsay, we're all humans first. So why don't we just get to know each other as people? And that's one of the things I loved about going through you all's program. When we got there, it's just, oh, this is this is Lindsay. This is McKenzie. This is Tuary. There's no other information. And I think we need to get back to just saying, hello, how are you? You know, what do you like to do? Not what do you do? Yeah. Because what you do doesn't define what kind of person you are. And I think that we put this, these definitions or these expectations on people because of the, the positions or careers that they have and thinking that then they're above or better than or better off. And that's not the case. Yeah. Mm. It's interesting too. Even I've realized that I've gotten when you're in positions of influence or something that sometimes what do you do sounds like what can you do for me? Yes. And it becomes yeah. this really yeah. transactional sort of like networking, but that it feels like for somebody that's really wired for relationship, I like am like, mm-hmm. oh, you're like missing me, you know, like, yeah. like I, it feels so surface. And so I love, yeah, the opportunity to just get to know people and what makes them tick and what makes them light up and what makes them cry, you know, it, it. It is a lot of the work we do at OnSite, but how do we sort of take that into our everyday and then even hold that same curiosity for people that we think we know because we follow them on Instagram or they're on television or whatever. Yeah, I think if, I mean, it's great when you, if you do meet someone of influence or who holds a high position and you have an opportunity to meet them and you ask them like, what's your favorite food? Yeah. Like, or what do you like to listen to when you're driving home? Like something just, you know, relational on on just this basic level of not, well, what, you know, oh, I saw that you were with so-and-so and did this and signed this piece of, like, who, no, what do you like to do? What do you like to eat? What's your favorite wine? I mean, anything. When people ask me what's my favorite food, I'm always like, oh my gosh, pizza. It <laughs> is? It's really pizza? It's pizza? Yeah. What's the best pizza place in Atlanta? Uh, okay, well, I think Antico is the best, mm. um, or Antico. It depends on, and Giovanni started that place maybe about 10 or 15 years ago now, but he brought the ovens in from uh, Italy mm. and... It's amazing because it takes 90 seconds. You can get whatever toppings you want. I love the fact that he had, when he first started, he had this big community table. Everybody sat at that table. You could bring your own wine. It's very relational, just, you know, very much intrinsic with Italian culture that you're sitting at this table and you're having conversation and no one's going to rush you. I love that. And I love the fact that he uses 
fresh, fresh, fresh ingredients, most of it from Italy. So that would be my my go to spot. Tori, the first time um, we got to be in kind of around the Emotionally Smart Leadership Program. And Lindsay and I were just talking about how we really want you guys to like bond with each other and we don't want to intrude. But I got to have a meal with you and we started talking about the slower pace of meals and eating. And you told me all of your favorite restaurants in Atlanta. And then you mentioned that you had had been on a trip to Italy. Um, And so I just am feeling really reminiscent of that and your experience with that. And I just was, I was sitting here thinking, oh my gosh, how beautiful, because I I remember feeling intimidated. I didn't know everything that you did, but I remember just hearing about your work with Plywood, and then I was like, I don't really understand what a district director is, but I know she's very important, and I, <laughs> but I didn't want to talk about what you did, and so it just really opened up this whole beautiful conversation and just talking about who are you as a person, and that is what I was just thinking of. I also spent the week asking people what their walk-up song was, so yeah. what was your walk-up song? You had a great one. Uh, walking on Sunshine. I think it's just so fitting and so good. I can't sing, or I would give y'all a little bit, <laughs> but it'll probably hurt your listeners' ears, and they'll be like, I'm going to turn off now. But if, <laughs> if you look at the movie Secret of My Success with Michael J. Fox, Walking on Sunshine is like one of my go-tos. Again, mm-hmm. it, it's funny that you said you were intimidated I am the least intimidating person, but I I do, um, I'm a reserved person. So Mm. that's why I also try to like really uh, go out of my comfort zone because a lot of times I'm uncomfortable, but I try to go outside of my comfort zone and, and make sure that I speak to everyone. That's a big thing for me is to engage with everybody uh, Mm. who's in the space and in the room. And no matter how uncomfortable I am, I I try to put my best foot forward. And that song really helps me to do that. It's such a fun song. Yeah. Hey there, it's Candy from the Onsite Marketing Team here to invite you to do this whole New Year's resolution thing differently this year. This time of year, everywhere you look, the world is urging you to improve or to fix and find the new you. But we think that a new year doesn't have to mean finding a new you. Instead of searching for that elusive, better version of yourself, I want to invite you to join me on a journey of rediscovering who you've been all along. What if what you've been missing isn't somewhere out there? It's right here inside you. You just need to reconnect and find it again. So this January, we'll embark on a six-week journey through our best-selling online course, Rediscovering You. This course is going to equip you to truly connect with yourself and help you build toward the life you've always desired. We're kicking off January 17th all together, and I'll be joining you as a coach and companion. So join me and a community of like-minded individuals for a journey of self-rediscovery. See, this journey isn't about fixing you because you're not broken. This journey is about reconnecting, reclaiming, and rooting into the life you want to live. Only you can break the cycles that keep you stuck and journey forward with a renewed sense of clarity, purpose, and connection. The good news is you have everything you need already. Head on over to onsiteworkshops.com slash rediscovering you and use the code new year at the checkout for $200 off. And one of the things I've heard you say, even in the week of meeting you, and then even in this conversation about just really wanting people to feel like they've been heard and seen and even just like yeah. making an effort to, to talk to every single person. 
are there people in your life like who have made you feel heard and seen in times that you didn't? Like, where did you get so passionate about creating space for everyone to literally be seen, even in a large group of people? Yeah, I would definitely attribute how I approach my professional career, um, obviously to the congressman, mm. to look and to work alongside him for as long as I did. And to, I mean, you you know what he's what he's done in the past. I mean, you know his he's an icon. So you say his name, and you're like, there are few people who don't know who he is, and what don't know what kind of impact he's he's made in this country and also just in the world. But he was able to kind of do like this, clear the mechanism and really intentionally be present in the moment. So it didn't matter however many meetings was on his schedule, whatever meeting he was in, he was totally present. And it didn't matter if the staff was telling him, hey, like we have to go. He was totally dialed in to whomever he was talking to. And a lot of times I I looked at that and observed, especially in the meetings that I was able to sit in. And I looked at that and I was like, this is amazing because he might be giving someone news that they they didn't want to hear or saying the hard things. Like you said, Lindsay, when you know, you, you heard him speak, but people felt this sense of, you know what? he heard me and he saw me during this moment. And so I might not like the information that he gave me, but at least he gave me the respect and showed me, you know, that I was worth listening to. And I feel like a lot of times people, they need that. They need to feel the connection because we're in this world of such busyness and so many distractions. And if you get down to basics, People want to be connected and they need to feel that sense of community. And that was that was a big thing that I, I learned from him. And I try to take it throughout my interactions, whether it's at home, uh, whether it's with the people, the kids that I mentor, uh, especially here on my team now. I, I really try to do that. So I, I would attribute that to him. I've had some great mentors in, in my life as well who have taught me just to kind of be relational and not transactional. There are too many people out here being transactional. What can you do for me? What can I do for you? But um, how can I help you or how can I walk alongside you and vice versa is better, is a better approach to me. Is there like a practical way when you like, because I know I can like slip it, like I want to be relational, but I also like it work. (laughs) totally slip into get it done mode. Yeah. I I feel like I've got one shift or the other sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. yeah. And that it can be kind of painful shifting from one gear to the the next. So are there practical things that you do when you like to slip into that relational gear or because I know what I know about you is you're the director of operations at Plywood. You were the district director. I mean, those Mm -hmm. are get it done jobs. And then especially when you have this like very, visionary leader that you're trying to help come alongside him and be the get it done girl. Yeah. Like how do you help slow yourself down and move into that relational flow? Well, I'm, I'm a time blocker. So I I always, and I'm a notebook girl. 
So I write down everything that I need to do and I try to time block, you know, what I have to get done. Those like, okay, this is a deadline type thing. So I time block that. People come to my office all the time. It It's crazy because the people here at Plywood, I mean, we're also a co-working space. So of course I make friends with everybody who comes in because I want them to feel welcome and seen and right. known. And I have this little, my door is glass but I have a, mm-hmm. uh, a curtain now. So when the curtain is down, people give me the respect like, oh, she must be really trying to focus. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes I have my door locked <laughs> so they can't come in. Or <laughs> so I had to hold up the finger like, I'm sorry, you know. Um, but when I have my door open and when that curtain's not up, then I give them that time. I can make mm-hmm. up for it because I don't I don't mind. I, I try to do more of a balance when I leave work. I try to cut things off, but I don't mind taking the hit. So if I feel like somebody really needs to, you know, sit down and talk, I'll take the hit and, and I can do the work. I can catch up later. But I, I do try to stick to my schedule as best I can. And I, I feel like time blocking for me helps me to focus on what I need to get done, what I can play around with in terms of, okay, I don't have to turn this in right now, or I don't have to finish this right now. Mm -hmm. And I try to finish out my assignment. So I'm very diligent and kind of strict with that. But I I leave room to make sure that people know that they they can come and, and speak with me if they need to. I love that. That's helpful. That was so practical. I was like, oh, that's so awesome to like create even clear delineations like I know yeah. sometimes even like within your schedule and with your space, like, okay, here's a space where I get stuff done. Here's a space where I've got the door open and I'm open to that even metaphorically, like opening my doors open to access and be available for other people. So I think that's such a beautiful marriage and a beautiful balance. And I, again, heard you say like, I'm willing to take the hit. Um, when you were saying, you know, you're taking the hit for your team, you're taking the hit for other people, like you have just such a, even a servant's heart in creating space for people and holding space for people. And so I just want to honor that in you. I see that um, in the way that you lead. And I love that you lead from a place of really creating space for people to show up as their whole selves. Thank you. I appreciate that. I do want to add, you You asked about who else has made me think about like, um how I lead. And Mm -hmm. I I will say being a part of this plywood team um, and working on this side of things with, with Jeff Schinnenbarger, who is the founder of plywood people. uh, He has a great heart for our team in terms of making sure that running a nonprofit is hard work. I mean, yeah, hard work. And you're usually doing great things with a small team and a limited budget. A lot of times, and you're serving people, mm-hmm. uh, he does a great job of rewarding the team or making sure that the team takes the time that they need to replenish themselves. Yeah. So I want to I want to give a shout out to him because honestly, when I first started, you know, I was like, oh, I could I could just work. It doesn't matter. Um, and he was like, yeah, no, you're going to take a vacation. <laughs> and then when the, when the year started, he checked in with me like, OK, so when are you planning on taking your vacation? And so he kept me accountable um, yeah. because, you know, it's not like in government where you can stack it. He's like, no, you're going to use it because at the end of this year, you're not going to be able to take that with you. And mm-hmm. I need you to because I need you to be your the best version of yourself so that you can 
continue to help me lead this team and, and get the things that we need to get done. So I love that. I'm a big Jeff fan. I met him like over <laughs> a decade ago and he, um, we were at a conference together and he just like slowed down to like, ask me like more about myself and what I was passionate about. And it ended up being one mm-hmm. of those catalytic conversations that have like pushed me into a deeper mm. level of questioning and ended up sort of sending me to look and see what else was out there and take another job and all this stuff. And I think he's one of those guys yeah. for a lot of people that is quietly behind the scenes, just asking questions, Absolutely. guiding people, um, encouraging them and just sort of catalyzing all sorts of movements that are happening in Atlanta and all around mm. the U.S. and probably the world. So, Absolutely. I mean, he, he is a great question asker and he's also very intense when he comes to his when it comes to his questions where you're like, maybe you shared more than you thought you would. Yes, have. totally. You yes. know, because he makes you feel comfortable and you walk away feeling like you know this wasn't a surface level conversation like he really cares about where you are and what you're how can he help you and what you're dealing with and what your challenges are so yeah I agree 100 percent uh will you speak to a little bit about what y'all do at plywood because it's so cool (laughs) <laughs> yeah, uh, Plywood is a nonprofit and we lead a community of startups that are doing good. So if you think about social entrepreneurship, any startup, whether it's for profit or nonprofit, that is making an impact of, in their sphere of influence. And um, we service them through our programming. We have three levels of programming that you can be a part of. PATH is our six week online intensive course where you're it's facilitation run um, and you're in a cohort with other startups, whether they're for profit or nonprofit, and you're going through a curriculum that Jeff uh, authored and put together with videos and um, interviews with people from all over uh, Atlanta and the world, actually, who kind of share their best practices Uh, how they got started and what their dream or what their problem they were trying to solve. And so it's, it's very Mm -hmm. helpful and it's amazing because it, it breeds this uh, genuine and organic connectivity amongst the cohort. So that's, that's helpful because then you're not only going through the curriculum, it's not, you see it shift from being like, Oh, the facilitators telling you, you know, what's in the, what's in the lesson for this week, but then you also get to see the cohort kind of come alive and gel and uh, challenge each other or encourage each other. And then the next program that we have is called Foundations, which is a three-day, kind of like a boot camp of sorts where you're with us for three days straight, all day, and it's intensive. We have speakers that Mm. come and speak to those 10 areas that we find are common areas of tension for people who are, you know, in the startup phase of the problem that they're trying to solve. And one of those days you get matched up with a mentor. So we have a mentor's dinner or an advisor dinner, and you'll get one-on-one time with one of our seasoned professionals who have been in you know, this space for 10 plus, 20 plus years. And it's your time to like throw everything on the table and ask whatever question you need to ask. And then finally we have layers. 
Yeah, it's dope. We just got finished doing one last week and it was amazing to see all of these connections and just organic conversations that were taking place throughout our space. Um, And then lastly is Layers, which is a year-long program and you meet monthly with a cohort and that's more accountability, more encouragement, more challenging um, in terms of you really have to, you know, do your homework and and stay involved, but the onus is on you. If you want to get your your project out there, we have the tools that will help you. So we offer advisor mentorship through for any of our members who are part of our community. And then every year in August we do a big conference called Plywood Presents where mm-hmm. it's, you know, all encompassing. It's it's fun. We have speakers, we have um, an ideas competition where we, you know, award funding and um, exposure to someone who is trying to make a difference in their community. So we're really so proud cool. of it. It's such a cool yeah. organization. And I don't know if y'all still use this tagline, but it used to, there used to be a tagline kind of associated with plywood that's like, may we be known by the problems we solve. That's still around and we have journals that have that on there. Another one is better as possible or the future mm. is good. Good ideas happen here, especially now that we've added a, a bigger co-working space. We're able to kind of, you know, nurture and make sure that our startup community who come to work out of our space on a daily, that they have the access to our programs and, and opportunities that we do within the space, mm-hmm. but also you know, we can check on them and make sure that they're doing okay. And if they need help, then they pop in somebody's office and we try to help them out. I love that. I I feel like in a time when the world can feel so full of problems, that it's so cool that you are surrounding yourself by these problem solvers. And like that, the hope that comes with being around people that are willing to not just languish in Mm. the dissatisfaction of our current situation but trying to like create a better future yeah and Mm. and it's just magnetic and I think that what we saw sort of or what we continue to see kind of come out of Atlanta is a lot of that energy of hope of like things can be different Mm -hmm. um and I hope that that hopeful energy continues to just spread throughout the world like we don't have to just languish (laughs) like there are things we can do but you know like even something fun like we'll we'll do um members well not friends giving but a mems giving where you know we we want to do something where we get all of these problem solvers all of these startups together in a space where not only are we giving them the tools that they need uh, to sustain and, and to scale, but also we want to make sure that just on the basic connected, you know, yeah. level of, oh, can I talk to someone else? You know, you go to all, well, pre-pandemic, you would go to these coffee shops and everybody had their earbuds in with their phone and their computer and they're like, they're insulated, right? They're doing yeah. their, they're doing their job. Well, you can come and work out of here and still do your job, but then you can look over and see someone who's also doing their job. And then you might both go and get coffee at the same time and strike up a conversation. And so we really are big on community here. And Mm. so much so we also in August uh, launched a podcast called Plywood Podcast, 
because we mm-hmm. recognize that there's not that many podcasts out there that speak to just social entrepreneurship. And we want to make sure that, again, we are capturing that audience that might be at home, that might not have a team with them um, to let them know that they're not by themselves. I think it can be so lonely. Like, I think yeah, being innovative, uh, world-changing, tackling big problems is really lonely and isolating. And I love that you're creating community around that. And I love that you're doing it and encouraging it from a healthy perspective. Like you having a conversation with you, I just feel like, oh, there's like a piece about you. And even you saying like, I'm learning to make sure that I, you know, am pouring out of a full cup and Jeff asking hard questions and him coming to you and saying, are you taking your vacation? Are you taking care of yourself? Because it does create sustainability. And I think from the top down, like you are influencing people who are going to influence people and it has such a rippling effect. And so I just love that. I also love what you guys said about the podcast that you you say, our goal is to be the number one rated podcast for nonprofit leaders and social entrepreneurs. Like, I just love that you even speak that out. Like, we want to reach people because oh, yeah. I think you have such a valuable message. So I love that. Thank you. You're welcome. You talked a lot about community. And so I'm wondering, like, why is community important in your own life? And what are some things that you do to build community? Because I think we're all in a really isolated, lonely season. And you were talking about ways to specifically build community for entrepreneurs and for people starting nonprofits and social movements, like even in our own lives, I think it's a question a lot of us are asking. We're asking really hard questions about community. How do I find it? What do I want? Who do I want to be for people around me? You know, it's been hard. So what would be your advice for building community? You have to have an open hand. (laughs) And I, I say that with like, if your hand is closed, you can't get anything, right? You couldn't, if you wanted to give me money right now, you couldn't put anything in it because my hand is closed. But if I open it, you could give me money or you could g- give me a gift or you could shake my hand or hold my hand. But with an open hand, you can receive. And I think, especially now that we're in year, going into year two of this pandemic, what we've seen yeah. is that isolation um, and the effects of that and people being lonely and we were not designed to live in isolation. We are people and we, we were designed to live in community. We were designed to, to be amongst each other, to help each other, to love on one another, to encourage one another, um, even to debate with one another. But we yeah. were designed to be amongst each other. Here's a story that I, I always tell people. I have a couple of people who come to Plywood now who are part of my coffee crew. And that coffee crew basically started about four years ago. In my neighborhood, there's a coffee shop. Dancing Goes Coffee Shop on North Ave by Pont City Market. That's the neighborhood that I live in. And for years, every morning, my husband would take me to work or I would drive to work and we would stop by this coffee shop because I needed a medium-sized Americano with an extra shot (laughs) and two packets of honey. Because I, you know, like... I had a 9 a.m. press call every morning. Like I, I need something sustenance. strong. Yeah. Sustenance, right. <laughs> Necessity and sustenance. So it was very interesting to make a long story short. My my husband actually, who is a big time, just he he never met a stranger. He's also <laughs> helped me pull me out of my my shell, but he started telling me about, well, hey, after I dropped you off at work, I went back to the coffee shop and I started talking to these, you know, to these people who I would see, he would see them every day. 
So I was like, well, how come you wait until after you drop me off? And he was like, well, you don't get up early enough. So I started getting up early enough and then we would both go to the coffee shop and then he would take me to work or I would start going to work. Well, we mm. I started seeing the, these people that he talked about. It was like five of them. And it's just because we all lived in a neighborhood and we all had similar schedules. So they would get to the coffee shop between eight and 8.30. And we became regulars, like the baristas knew our order, the people who would come in there knew not to sit in that area because we were about <laughs> to fill it up. Um, and then when the pandemic hit, they they shortened their hours. So we started meeting at the coffee shop on the weekend on either Saturday or Sunday, every mm. weekend, which was very helpful for all of us on an individual level because it created it allowed us to continue our rhythm for having something yeah. that we had grown accustomed to daily it also it was funny because out of that one of them sold two of us our houses another <laughs> we went to their graduation the whole group helped me during my time in 2020 my my husband had covid and almost died oh in the gosh, beginning of uh, oh 2020 so you know, they became my support group, even though they couldn't physically help me because, you know, you couldn't at that time, especially couldn't help, but they were a support in terms of checking in with me and seeing how I was doing and sometimes stopping by and, and bringing, bringing dinner because they knew that I was working and taking care of him. So it was out of that, just saying hello, having an open hand um, and being just curious of someone else's life that we are still in existence and still meet up every single weekend because we now have a fondness and a deep respect for one another. And that, that came out organically. So that's the way that I like to talk about how to build community. I think it's with you being able to be a little bit vulnerable and just say who you are and asking the next person about who they are. Yeah, I love. Yeah. And and being willing to just have your eyes open and see who's there and available yeah. and like bend your routine a bit so that you can like that you were willing to get up early because you realize you might be yeah. missing out on something. I mean, sleep's sacred. Yeah. But it was very yeah. sacred. But that you how much you've gotten out of it is really cool. I think there's intentionality and proximity also came up in hearing that of like we're we're able to be in the day-to-day of each other's lives because we live in the same neighborhood and we do like have similar schedules. Like a proximity, I think, often plays a role that we don't always give the weight. And then even just because you live close doesn't mean you don't have to then be intentional with creating that space and that time and even, you know, navigating it and changing it and being flexible. Like now we do the weekends. And so that's so cool. Yeah, it's been great. Is your husband recovered? Is he doing okay? Yeah. yeah, he's he's fully recovered. I mean, thank God. I uh, he got it in March of 2020, and um, so those early, early scary days where we didn't know anything. Exactly, and uh, they wouldn't let me. I took him to the hospital March 23rd, and they kept him for five hours and gave him intravenous drugs to uh, reduce the inflammation in his lungs, and he quarantined all the way up until Easter. And then mm-hmm. the month of April, we spent walking and rebuilding his strength uh, and his lung capacity. And then 
uh, decided to get a physical for him and he wanted to get his chest x-ray before his physical so he could talk to his doctor and see, you know, ask questions because we didn't know, you know, anything. Um, And right when he got his x-ray, by the time he got home from that, the doctor called us and said that uh, the lab tech had called him to tell him to look at his x-ray immediately uh, he had a collapsed lung and had to have emergency surgery. Wow. Um, so then that started that and he ha- had emergency surgery. And then four days later, it collapsed again and had another surgery. So we dealt with that for 123 days. Hmm. And that was in the midst of working for the congressman. And then when the congressman passed and, you know, me onboarding yeah. here. And um, so I was dealing I was under a lot of pressure and um, I'm, I'm thankful that uh, my husband's still here and running his mouth and <laughs> you wouldn't know any anything different. Um, so I'm, I'm very thankful, yeah. to say the least. That is a lot yeah. to be caring. Thanks for asking. Just want to acknowledge all that you walked through and you're so resilient to come out on the other side. And Thank you. We're grateful for you. A lot of times in wrapping up, we just ask people if they've got a daily practice that kind of helps keep them centered. Um, Is there anything that you Mm do kind of day in, day out that kind of helps keep you feeling grounded and sane? Yeah, the first thing I do before my feet hit the ground after the alarm goes off is I turn on my phone and go to my Bible app. I have to read just a scripture and just kind of set my day. Hmm. And now I've incorporated meditation just to kind of quiet uh, my mind because Mm -hmm. as a leader, as a person who's carrying a lot, you know, as a parent, a mom, a dad, you know, you're, you're constantly making these to-do lists and, you know, checking off and, uh, Oh, do I have this? Whatever. I try to, to kind of clear my mind and allow the quiet to set in and then it, it helps me to look at what I have in front of me and what I have to do that day with a fresh pair of eyes. Mm. And I, I tell myself that every morning. I've actually started doing that after I left on site. The meditation component, clearing that mechanism is, is very helpful for me. And also reading the scripture is very helpful for me. So it's great. Mm. So grounding right there in the morning. Yeah. Terry, thank you so much for chatting with us. I'm so grateful to have gotten a little bit of time with you um, and to get to see your heart a little bit more and get to know you. It's just, we are so grateful for all the work that you're doing. And um, I'm just really grateful for who you are as a person and how that is impacting so many people. So thanks. Thanks. It was a pleasure seeing both of y'all. Y'all made my week, actually. (laughs) Good. Thank you for listening today and for committing valuable time to share space with these powerful stories. Make sure you hit subscribe to get all of our inspiring conversations with these incredible people delivered directly to you. And if you found this conversation particularly impactful, consider supporting the show by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. When our emotional health is suffering, many of us begin to feel alone and overwhelmed. If you're in that place right now, we deeply encourage you to ask for help. If OnSite can support you in connecting the dots with one of our programs or other offerings, our admissions team would love to connect with you. Simply call 1-800-341-7432 or visit onsiteworkshops.com.